0: But I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to uh, Joshua chapter 6, the passage that Michelle read for us a little while ago. Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. I just want to highlight these two verses. Joshua 6, beginning in 20. So the people shouted, and the priest blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword." You know, one of the questions that people have when they think about the existence of God, and uh, this is a favorite question uh, posed particularly by atheists, but it's not limited to uh, atheism and agnosticism, but it's uh, a question that many people have, including Christians, is how can the God of Love. How can the God of Scripture um, order and and do such horrible things? And how can he order the complete annihilation of the Canaanites, including women and children? What's that all about? Uh, It has led some to conclude that the God of the Old Testament, if he is even there... Uh, is not the same God as the God of the New Testament uh, who represents himself in Jesus Christ. And that there is a disparity between the two uh, testaments. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of vengeance and anger and judgment. And the God of the New Testament is the God of love and compassion and mercy and those two do not go together. And so uh, this is a problem that a lot of people struggle with. And they try to find answers uh, to that. And we can't study uh, Joshua and the conquest of Canaan without coming face to face with this question. How is it that God ordered, and, and this goes back to Deuteronomy, uh, how is it that God ordered the utter annihilation of all the Canaanites, even the infants, even little girls and little boys, and uh, ordered them to be destroyed by the sword as Joshua led the Israelites into the land. And I want to try to bring uh, some answers and some help for that this morning. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done a study on this, or perhaps looked up different writers on the internet, but uh, I did, (laughs) and I found them singularly uh, unhelpful. Uh, I just didn't find very many people that could give me any information that if I were a questioning person uh, would give me a good answer. Um, You know, one person uh, spent... uh, quite a bit of time explaining all that was going on and his final summary was God is God and we don't question him and if you're like I am that's a (laughs) non-answer it's okay but why does God do the things that he does give me a reason that can satisfy my understanding and then the, the answer to that is well God is never going to satisfy your understanding. You're not supposed to understand. You're supposed to simply believe. And uh, I have a little bit of difficulty with that because while faith indeed is is a step uh, beyond ourselves and putting our trust and confidence in God, the reality is that God gives us plenty of reasons to believe. He doesn't say uh, throw your brain away, you're not going to need it anymore. Just trust me uh, because uh, I you know I'm God and I'm always right and you don't need to worry about it. He he gives us reasons that appeal to our sensibilities uh, that give us a rational explanation and understanding of God. Not that we can ever fully grasp him in his totality but he can certainly give us enough information about himself that it will give us a good uh, foundation for our faith. So I want to try to give you some reasons this morning why God ordered the annihilation of Canaan. And for me, it begins with understanding the background of the Canaanites. We kind of get lost sometimes in biblical history. We have a tendency to see it as uh, isolated snippets here and there, uh, and we don't have any concept of the timeline or what's been going on uh, in the background that uh, surround the events that are highlighted. But the, the Canaanites uh, at the time of Joshua really are not that far removed from Noah. And if you consider the fact that God started over with Noah, by the way, it's interesting to me that people do not have quite so many questions about a flood that destroys the whole world as they do about this disturbing verse that says, uh, kill all the women and children. That, that gives them more grief than the fact that all the women and children died in the flood. But anyway, we go back to Noah. And God selected Noah because he was the only person who found favor in the eyes of God at that time, at that moment in human history. And God preserved him. And so when Noah and his family came off the ark, there had been a cleansing of the earth. There had been a destruction of the the ways of... Man that, as the scripture put it, the thoughts of man were evil continually from morning till night. Every person was given to evil. Noah comes out of that purging, out of that cleansing, and he brings a fresh beginning. And Noah is a preacher of righteousness He's a man who knows God, knows the ways of God, understands the character of God. And through Noah, the human race is sort of reborn as he begins to proclaim uh, the character of God to all of his children and grandchildren and so forth. And so from the time of Noah, which was approximately using a biblical basis for the timeline... 2,500 B.C. to Babel which was about 400 years later to the time of Abraham and the time when God appeared to Abraham and made the promise I'm going to give you uh, the land of Canaan all the land that you you can see from here all the land that you put your feet upon I'm going to give this land to you it's my promise to you it belongs to you but he says the iniquity of the Canaanites is not complete. And so I'm going to delay that for 400 years. And after that 400 year period, then I will give this land uh, to your uh, offspring after you. Remember how long people lived before the flood. Five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years. And a lot of times people say, well, how did they count time? (laughs) You know, how many years was that anyway? Well, I do not pretend to have all the the answers from a, a physics standpoint as to what the earth was like, but there are enough hints that we gather that in some way or another, the earth was protected, the environment was protected. There was uh, a moderate temperature around the globe. Uh, we know that because we uh, have discovered uh, coal uh, beds at the South Pole. And how do you get coal? Uh, you get rotting vegetation. And so at one time, the South Pole was as verdant and green as uh, Canada or the jungles of South America. Something happened to dramatically change that. Something happen- happened to the atmosphere. And after the flood, if you plot the, the longevity of the lives of the patriarchs, there's a gradual declining curve. That rate of decay is found again and again uh, in uh, uh, electronics. It's, it's found in different uh, areas of physical truth. There's something that happened at the flood that began to shorten the time span of human life. And even in the time of Abraham, he lived quite some time. He was 90 years old you know, when he had uh, Isaac, and um, after that he lived quite some time. And so these people were living a long time. My point is this, there may have been a grandson of Noah still alive at the time of Abraham, or a great-grandson they were not that many generations removed. You know, if we go back and think about uh, who do you know that came over uh, with the pilgrims? What relative of yours? You think, I don't have a clue, you know. That was uh, generations and generations ago. In fact, now we consider a generation to be about 20 years. So you have five generations in 100 years. But in the time of Abram... It's entirely likely that a couple of hundred years equaled a generation. And so my point is that the Canaanites knew about God. They were not ignorant of the, of the God of moral truth. They were not ignorant of the God of righteousness. Abraham was not ignorant of the God of righteousness. When he, um, paid ties to Melchizedek. He, he was not ignorant of the God of righteousness. Job was not inter, uh, ignorant of the God of righteousness, and Job was only 100 or perhaps 200 years before Abram. And so there was a general knowledge of the God of Scripture throughout all the peoples of the earth at the time of Canaan. It was not that they were an ignorant people who didn't know anything about religion, true religion. As we send missionaries today to parts of the world, uh, it's hard to find parts now because missions has done an excellent job, but we send missionaries to parts of the world where they've never heard of the God of the Bible because 3,000 years, 4,000 years has passed since this time. But in this period of time, it was just the opposite. They started out with a complete knowledge of God that began to deteriorate. And so the Canaanites began with a knowledge of the true God, as did Abram. And God said to him, they're already on the slippery slope. They're already headed away from me. I'm going to give them time to get their act together. I'm going to give them time to get straightened out. I'm going to give them 400 years. And after that period of time, he says, when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete, then I will give this land to your offspring. So why was it important then? So take that backdrop and understand that the Canaanites started out with the knowledge of God. Why the total annihilation of the Canaanites? Well, the Canaanite tribes were farming tribes who depended on the fertility of the soil. And one of the things that the devil wants to do is to distract us from the goodness and the provision and care of God and to distract us from the the primacy of a spiritual walk with a holy God to a very earthly-grounded experience in worldliness. And so most false religions of the world, although they have supernatural gods in their religious uh, beliefs, they are, in one way or another, anchored to the things of this earth. The Canaanite tribes were anchored in farming and relied on the fertility of the soil to provide for them their livelihood. And so their religion uh, became centered around sacrifice And fertility for an abundant harvest. They worshipped Baal. And the little Baals. And Asherah. Now Baal was the god of uh, rebirth and fertility. And Asherah was uh, not exactly his wife. But it was his female counterpart. And the Baals and the Asherah were revered as the ones they depended on to provide for them a bountiful harvest. So how did they worship the Baals and the Asherah? Well, their practices included the sacrifice of the community firstborn, because Baal was also the god of death, and he was the god of rebirth. Things would die in the fall, they would be reborn in the spring. That carries through. Uh, the Roman goddess Ishtar, by the way, does that sound like anything you've ever heard of? Ishtar <laughs> was uh, the goddess of spring fertility and new birth. And so we adopted the name, call it Easter, and uh, did all kinds of interesting things to the resurrection uh, and our celebration of it. But I'm not going there this morning. But their practices included the sacrifice of the in the community of the firstborn, the sacrifice of children for special request, public ritual sex for blessings of fertility, communication with demons through mediums. They would have worship experiences and they would have uh, public celebrations where people would take on the costume and nature of the Baals and the Asherah, and they would have sex in the square in front of all the community. We think our nation is going downhill. We're not there yet. I don't know how much longer it will be. I think we're headed that direction. But um, this was a, a land that had become morally vile and utterly filthy in its mentality. You can imagine a whole people that were given over to uh, fertility and sexual rights that were practiced openly and publicly. Add to that the sacrifice of children. Add to that demonic worship and the consultation of mediums and spiritists and put that all together together and you have a a people that had given themselves to total rejection of the ways of God that had been passed down from Noah, so that the entire community was steeped in pagan uh, ritual, public immorality, human sacrifice, and demon worship. This was Canaan. 400 years after God said, I'm going to give you a chance... This is where they ended up, in utter wickedness. And so why then, okay, you can almost understand, okay, this is why to destroy all the men. But we're thinking in terms of modern warfare. We get all upset when there are civilian casualties. It bothers us when women and children are killed in warfare. Talk to some soldiers, if you can get them to talk to you, about Vietnam, about the wars in Iraq, about the kinds of things they had to deal with. You know, you would like to think that they uh, were coming in as the rescuers, the Savior, and dealing with the the wicked men who had led their nations astray. But uh, my cousin, who was a Marine in Vietnam, talked about uh, the children who would approach the caravans of soldiers. They loved the candy that the soldiers had, and, and many of the soldiers... Tugging at their heartstrings in our American way would give out candy and they would they would run up to the jeeps and to the to the um, various trucks in the caravan and and they would want candy and they would have grenades and various bombs and when they would approach the caravan or, or the um Help me out. What am I trying to say? Convoy, thank you. When they would approach the convoy, um, they would detonate their bombs, blow themselves up, and kill the soldiers. So my cousin, what, what would you do if that were the case? My cousin said, we carried long sticks and, and heavy boards, and when the kids got near, we batted them in the head. We knocked them down. We want, We didn't want them anywhere near us. They had to learn, don't approach the convoy, because we don't know what you're up to. You know, some of you saw the the movie American Sniper, and his first kill was a child who was carrying a bomb to detonate against his own people, you know, against the, the American soldiers. We want to tidy war up into this nice little package and put a bow on it and say we can isolate it to this kind of uh, combat and, and we're going to not get involved in this other kind. War is messy. It's not anything that fits any kind of rules, particularly today. Nor did it in that time. So first of all, we try to force our uh, view of of moral warfare, which is probably an oxymoron in and of itself, we try to fit our view of moral warfare and superimpose it on Joshua and the Scriptures without taking into any account the, the supernatural spiritual implications as well as the debauchery of a whole people group. The women were as evil as the men. They were as involved as the men. They were among the mediums and spiritists. They were into demon worship. They were into the public sex rights. They were part of the problem. They were not innocent bystanders who had been abused by the men of their culture. They were part of the cultural problem. And then you add to that children who were brought up in those ways. And who were taught those methods of worship from the time that they are infants. Add to that, and and here's where we um, have difficulty with our contemporary Western mentality. Add to that the reality of demonic influence and control. Because human beings do not go to those extents without assistance. It's not that we're not evil. we got plenty of evil to go around. But the enemy gets in there. The devil gets in there. And demonic spirits get in there. And demons begin to influence the culture. And bring deception and lies. And begin to infest the people, and their children. You don't have to believe this if you don't want to, but uh, I have had the experience in deliverance ministry of, of dealing with demonic spirits who profess to have entered the lives of children at the time of birth. Demons do not play fair. They do not respect any kind of uh, personal consent. Family demons influence children and affect children. And as a consequence of that, children are often uh, touched and affected by the demonic spirits that have controlled their families. Now, look at a culture that is totally given to evil, totally absorbed in wickedness, full of demon worship, that goes to the youngest child among them. And consider the Israelites through whom God had promised to give a Messiah who required preservation for another thousand fifteen hundred years of history until Jesus could be born. And what is the greater act of love? To permit the wickedness to exist because of women and children? Or to annihilate it and purge it in order to protect the nation that would ultimately bring the Savior and Redeemer of the world. If your choice is between offering salvation to all of humanity versus annihilating a people who were given 400 years to get their act together and spent that whole time going from bad to worse, What is the solution? If you're a holy God who is entirely just, you do away with the wickedness. You purge the evil in order to preserve the thing that you're building for righteousness. People say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and maliciousness and a hatred, but if you look carefully at his own action, consider Nineveh. God sent Jonah to preach a revival to Nineveh. Nineveh was a wicked city. In fact, it was a city that was as wicked as any that the world had ever seen, and God gave them a chance. Jonah didn't want to go. You know why? Because he said, I know you're a God of love. And you're a God of long-suffering. And you're a God of mercy. And I didn't want to go because I hate those stinking Ninevites. I just want to do my own thing. And uh, Jonah ended up being persuaded. God had an interesting way of getting his attention. And so uh, when he was spit up on the shores of Nineveh, <laughs> he decided that maybe he ought to follow the plan. And he went to Nineveh, and he preached the gospel, the the gospel of the Old Testament, the God of love, the God that forgives, the God that rescues. And what happened? Revival broke out. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. They wept over their sin. They turned to God. Uh, Over a hundred thousand of them turned to God. Jonah was so ticked off, he left town and pouted. He was so irritated with God. But God, in His love, spared and rescued the Ninevites. Who knows what would have happened to the Canaanites had they reacted differently to the opportunity that God had given them. Consider God's compassion upon Nebuchadnezzar. They come sweeping in and take captive the southern kingdom. And Daniel and his friends end up there, and what does Daniel do? He begins to live out and, and give an example of the ways of God. He seeks the Lord, he prays, he keeps faithful, he abides by the diet that God has given him. And, and all of a sudden, uh, the Babylonians begin to look at this uh, plan that Daniel is living before them, and they say, wow, there's something to this. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dramatic turning toward God. And the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is one of going back and forth as Nebuchadnezzar uh, turned to God, turned away from God, turned back to God, but eventually learned of a loving and a just God. These were the Babylonians. They were the ones that took over the southern kingdom. But God, in His mercy and love, reached out to them. Did you know that the Bible says, and I gave you some references up here in Roman numeral 1, letter B, I gave you about half of them, there's seven of them there, 14 times in the Scripture, it says God is slow to anger. If there's one thing that's true about God, it is that He is slow to anger. To bring judgment and anger against people. He patiently waits and waits and waits. The scripture says, do you not know that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That God sends His rain upon the just and the unjust and causes the sun to shine. Who is the God of harvest fertility it's the one that sends the rain and the sun the god of heaven who is the one that that loves the unlovely it is the god of grace and mercy he is slow to anger just think about that a moment aren't you glad that he has been slow to anger with you Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that God did not give you the smackdown the minute you stepped off the path, but patiently and lovingly coaxed you back to the journey, or waited for you to wake up and get back on the path? That's God's nature. He is slow to anger. He is a God of great patience and of great mercy. And that is His character throughout all of Scripture. He loves people. He knows them by name. He cares about them throughout all eternity. And yet the Scripture says, it is a terrible thing To fall into the hands of the living God. If we persist in evil, if the ungodly persist in evil, there will come a day of judgment. There will come a time. Who knows when that time will be? One day, if there is not revival and repentance in the United States, A nation that was founded as one nation under God and that cherished religious liberty will be a nation that comes under God's judgment. And yet how long has God waited? 400 years. He has been patient. He has been long-suffering. Do not fear the one, Jesus said, who can kill the body, but fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. You know, the Scripture says how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. For those who love the Lord, God leaves us here on this planet until our task is done and we have fulfilled His purpose for us, His mission. And then it says He is... Anxious to bring us home to his heart. And how precious the day that we move into his presence. But to fall into the hands of of an angry God. Who is ready to bring judgment by casting both body and soul into hell. That is a sobering thought. And people need to take heed. In the final analysis, God made us and he owns us. You see, we didn't make each other. Not really. Yes, we have children, but only because God designed us to be procreative. They don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. Human beings are gods. They belong to Him. He is fair and just in all that He does. I guess in some ways I'm going to give you the same answer, maybe. God always is fair. And we may not always understand, but He is always just. And He is always loving. And He is always gracious. That's his character. That's his nature. What if there had been a Canaanite that had held back and stayed away and followed God? What if there had been that person? What would have happened to them? Had they been killed in the conquest of Canaan? Where would they be? In God's presence. Do you suppose there were any true believers in the Twin Towers the day that they fell down? Don't you think there were? True followers of Jesus Christ. I won't begin to tell you if I think that was an act of judgment or not. I don't know. I think when we make those brash statements, we're way out of line. We don't know what's the judgment of God and what's the wrath of the devil and what's just the the nature of nature. We just don't know those things unless God tells us. And most of the people that think God told them, I think, have been drinking something. But I am pretty sure there were followers of Jesus Christ that died in that. Does that mean God didn't love them? Don't fear the one that can kill the body. That's not the end. And we move into His presence. And we spend eternity with Him. It doesn't get any better. We're designed to love life and and to want to live. We're designed to cherish and value life. But when the time comes for those who know him, going into his presence is not the worst thing that can happen. So, does the Sixth Commandment prohibit killing other human beings? Well, the Sixth Commandment prohibits murder, not homicide. And there are circumstances of justifiable homicide. You realize that? Murder is taking another life without cause. You, you, you just kill somebody without cause but there are times when taking the life of another person is necessary in the interest of the greater good uh, scriptures have an interesting thing to say they talk about the thief that breaks in the night and i and i listen to the rhetoric today um as we are having a raging debate in our nation over gun control and um You know, you hear these macho uh, people that say, somebody breaks into my house, I'm just going to shoot them. Well, the Bible had a very clear um, explanation of how to handle that. If you're dark, if it's dark and you can't see anything, and there's someone in your house, it is fair, they didn't have guns, so you could smack them one with whatever you had at hand. But if it were daylight or light and you could see that the only reason they were there was to steal your stuff and they did not have a weapon, then if you killed them, you were guilty of murder. It's very plain. In other words, the basis for Self-defense is if you don't know that your life is in danger, but you feel that it could be. You have a reason to protect yourself or your family. But if you can see the purpose of the, of the thief, and that he or she is not armed, and their intent is only to take your things, you're not allowed to touch them. Let them go. Run them off. Yell at them. But let them go. Somebody comes into my house in the middle of the night. Our bedrooms are upstairs. My attitude is, you can back a U-Haul up to the front door and shovel in everything I've got downstairs. It's yours. When you start up the stairs, we've got problems. But you can have everything you want. You can even take the keys and take the cars. I don't care. That's why I have insurance. (laughs) You know, we'll deal with that. Hopefully it'll take you long enough to load up. The police will get there. But if they don't, it's not the end of the world. Because there's no reason to take a life that only threatens your stuff. But there is biblical justification for taking a life that threatens your life or the life of your family, your spouse, your children. That's a whole different matter. And so you have to, you have to look at the the total biblical perspective. You know, when the scripture says turn the other cheek and bless those that curse you, bless and curse not. It's talking about religious persecution. It's speaking of a different subject than if a person just as a criminal has the intent of harming you. That's another matter entirely. And there are people who we know around the world persecute other believers. For being followers of Jesus Christ. There's a different commandment for that situation. Than for those who are just being driven by criminality. And want to do you harm. Um, and so we have to put all of that in perspective. Paul says the officers of the law do not bear the sword in vain. But are God's servants of justice. The sword in the Roman Empire was the the instrument of capital punishment or the instrument the, the defensive weapon or the offensive weapon, as the case may be, that would take life. And it calls them God's minister. Pagan Romans Why? Because they maintained order in a society that would be a disaster if there was no order. You know, we have a lot of debate now about what's happening with police and how they're acting and what's going on. How would you like to go down to Chicago if the entire police department went on break? How would you like to go on a shopping trip or work down there if there was no law enforcement at all How long do you think it would survive? The fear of a gun on the hip of an officer keeps order and allows the righteous to live, to pursue just causes. And so God has a different perspective. He calls them his servants. And so capital punishment is a God-given instrument to the state. How much more when it is justly ordered by God. Friends, God told Joshua, annihilate the Canaanites. Not because I hate Canaanites and your special people and I'm going to let you do whatever you want but because I am making of you a great nation through whom I will bring a redeemer who will save the world from its sin and the Canaanites have had 400 years to repent and they've gone from bad to worse and their day of judgment has come and it's time go in Destroy them, and I will give you this land. I hope that helps some. I hope it helps you a lot, (laughs) but at least some, or gives you something to think about. Um, God is just, and he is fair in all things. I'm going to ask Michael if he'll come at this time and lead us in our concluding prayer.